We have to disrupt ourselves before other people disrupt us. The value is based on who you know that knows the industry and what the drivers of value are. There's no playbook. The array of challenges that are coming is so different and so much more rapid fire than we've seen before in this industry. Saying no to technology is not an option. Welcome back to Disruption Matters, a podcast produced by Private Equity International in partnership with series sponsor Alex Partners, where we delve into the forces that are shaking up the economy and how private equity firms can best weather these drastic changes. In this episode, we're looking at how private equity operators are dealing with the constantly evolving cyber threat landscape. Chase, I'm kind of nervous about this one. The last thing I need right now is to upset a hacker and get locked out of my computer in a ransomware attack. Don't worry, Rob. Black Hats usually check the bank account balance of the people they're targeting first, so I'm pretty sure they'll realize pretty quickly it's a waste of time to go after guys like us. That's comforting. Also, a little sad. But for private equity-owned portfolio companies, the risk of cyber disruption is very real and very material. That's why it's becoming standard practice for private equity teams to bring cyber awareness into every phase of the investment cycle, starting with diligence. We certainly are seeing that with our customers, uh, addressing cybersecurity as a key fundamental step in the process. And I think it's becoming more and more the imperative. That was Beth Musumeci, global leader of the cyber practice at Alex Partners. You know, embedding cybersecurity throughout the deal lifecycle, doing that cybersecurity analysis, even from early inception, you know, when a target's identified, doing some risk sensing, just understanding what their public persona looks like using publicly available information, you can really get a good sense for the cybersecurity discipline and hygiene of an entity. You can see if they've possibly been breached, credentials released, etc., give you a sense so that you understand then how to cumulatively account for that in the deal life cycle. So I think that's really important for the deal team to understand, not just the risk from a, you know, a cybersecurity perspective and cybersecurity jargon, but here's what it means from a business perspective and you know, what true dollars and cents it could mean. So let's say a private equity buyer is looking at acquiring a potential target and they find evidence of a breach. Can that lead to a deal being pulled off the table? Here's Bill Newman from Level Minic. Interestingly, we've never found, or I've never personally found, evidence of an actual breach, but have found strong evidence that there would be the potential for one. And usually that doesn't scuttle a deal. What it does is it changes the deal economics so that we're thinking about uh, how much do we need to invest in cyber to get the company up to snuff and make sure that you know, we're preventing any future potential risks. There are some very real examples of this. If you're a management team at a company looking to get acquired, it's probably worth doing a deep dive of your own cyber situation. If you don't believe me, just ask Yahoo. In 2017, Verizon acquired Yahoo for $4.48 billion. During the exploration of that deal, Cyber Diligence identified an exposure impacting over 500 million user accounts. Since Verizon was able to identify this breach prior to closing, they were in a position to renegotiate the purchase price by $350 million. Yahoo was also fined $35 million by the SEC for failing to disclose the incident and paid $85 million to shareholders. Hack-related costs were then split between Verizon and Yahoo. Regardless of when in the process the breach was discovered, that's a significant erosion of value and a great example of why cyber diligence is so critical. I can think of one other nightmare scenario from a year prior to the Yahoo acquisition. I bet you're talking about the Marriott Starwood deal, right? Exactly. 
Marriott closed that acquisition in September 2016 for $13.6 billion, and they were particularly keen to integrate Star Wars' customer loyalty program framework. But what they didn't discover until after the deal was closed was that they bought a platform with a pretty big cyber hole in it, and it cost them. An incomplete cyber audit resulted in vulnerabilities that led to $30 million in recovery expenses, a $120 million fine in the UK, reputational damage, and an estimated $1 billion in lost revenue from diminished customer loyalty. That really is a nightmare for investors and management teams. And of course, deal teams are going to do everything they can to identify exposure and risk in process. But as Bill says, time sensitivity in M&A can often limit how deep private equity firms can go. Even if you were to spend a week, a month digging through the aspects of a business, you're going to leave stones unturned. So while it's extremely important to do that diligence, I feel like it should be incumbent upon investors to expect that there will be something unexpected. Yeah, it's exactly why we propose you know, pre and post money analysis, because, you know, things happen. There's things you can learn about that entity, and you really should dial that into the deal process. If there's going to be some expense that, you know, is there that needs to be solved so that it minimizes the risk after you've acquired the asset. Uh, you need to dial that in to the negotiation and to the deal process so you understand the true value and valuation. Okay, so let's say our listeners have calculated in the cyber risk in their M&A process, completed the deal, and acquired a new company. Now they're approaching the management team to advise them on cybersecurity. How do they know what to prioritize? Here's what Brad Strayhorn at Thompson Street Capital has to say. You can't throw a report with 100 remediation items at them. Well, actually you can, but then you say focus on you know, the highs and half the mediums and just chuck it off into some small things. In fact, in parallel to that, we have top seven. Like that's always where I start, you know, the basic things like table stakes. Nobody can argue that these things are not to be done, right? And very rare, you know, probably one of 30, one of 50, you know, due diligence have ever had all seven being good. But I think I take somewhat of the less aggressive, meaning being very conservative with cybersecurity view, because it helps me get credibility with the management teams. If I say the sky's falling and you have to go fix these five things and these are all material, they're not used to that. And for our small companies, you know, you're going to lose them right in the beginning, you know, versus, hey, fix these four of these seven things, then we'll go from there. That's kind of the approach I think works for us or at least me. Nobody likes a chicken little, but it does seem like management teams are becoming hip to the idea that a strong cybersecurity stance is an essential part of running any business. To me, you know, technology is innovation is always going to, you know, and it seems to be accelerating, you know, more and more as time goes on. So saying no to technology is not an option. It used to be the cybersecurity office was, you know, Dr. No. To me, it has to be yes. And yes, and this is how you adopt really is the better answer. And if you address it earlier, we're seeing more and more technology innovation centers, et cetera, taking on new technology, emerging technology, and evaluating how to embed cybersecurity you know, into it early uh, and to address those risks and, and gaps. And this really can help empower the business to operate more confidently, to use emerging tech uh, in a way that you know, cybersecurity requirements that you need, the, your risk appetite can be addressed as it's being deployed, but you need to do it quick and has to be nimble and absolutely can generate value if performed that way. 
That idea, building a cybersecurity program that can create value, is one that really stood out in our conversations. But there are some, like Brad at Thompson Street, who haven't bought into the idea that a cyber program can add value. You know, we at the firm think of it a lot more in terms of just capital preservation, right? It's not the sexy growth stuff that everybody wants to work on, but, you know, it helps you protect a $250 million asset. Bill Newman at Level Minick has his own take on whether or not a cyber program can create value. So there are a couple of interesting examples of uh, cybersecurity as a value differentiator. You know, one thing that's been in the news over the last uh, maybe six or eight months is M&A activity with uh, managed service providers. In my uh, previous role serving hedge funds and asset managers, it was pretty clear those kinds of clients did not have and still do not have a, a ton of security expertise on staff. You know, they're relatively lean in terms of technology people. And these managed service providers have been able to, in some cases, uh, significantly differentiate themselves by having a solid uh, cybersecurity offering. So, you know, as, as I've been looking at that sector specifically, there's a market difference in potential valuation of a firm that has those offerings and that doesn't. If we think about uh, generalizing that to any kind of investable firm, I guess I would be looking at, are there clients awakening to the cybersecurity challenges that are out there? And thus, do they value that in their deal cycle? I might suggest that at least for the next uh, several years, companies that can differentiate themselves in terms of being able to offer a more secure offering or a higher level of cyber diligence are going to have you know higher win rates. And to me, that means uh, higher growth rates. To Bill's point, there are plenty of programs and tools that management teams and operating partners can turn to in order to shore up their cybersecurity stance. But shiny new toys alone aren't enough. In many cases, new technology tools only add to the burden. An example might be APIs. That's application programming interfaces for the uninitiated. And uh, if you think about some of the uh, really cool capabilities that are available from a SaaS perspective. No, Bill is not talking about the SaaS your mom warned you not to give her. He's talking about software as a service, in case you're not familiar with the term. Uh, you know, stitching together a SaaS solution with uh, services from all across the internet from a variety of providers, that rests on APIs. The mechanisms and uh, approaches to secure those have been known for quite a long time, yet APIs as an attack vector remain a material portion of the overall uh, cybersecurity threat landscape. So I, I think at some level, what is needed to make sure that we can you know, capitalize on new technologies without creating new threats to uh, correspond with them is to make sure that people that are you know, taking advantage of the new technologies, namely the software development team, are well-trained in the underlying security principles and are designing in security from the start. So obviously, it's important to invest in cyber defense, but it's also important not to get the impression that technology solutions can get the job done without the right people in place to implement them and guide a clear strategy. I've seen more in the diligence phase, uh, companies that have some of the latest whiz-bang technologies and nobody that's trained to use them. You know, for example, intrusion detection software that is, you know, pinging like mad about uh, various things that are going on in the system and nobody watching it or taking action as a result. At some level, I think for many of the technologies that are available today, if you invest in them, you're making some kind of commitment as to applying the people and expertise to use it properly. We've had incidents where someone has, they claim, or, you know, used to be, oh, yeah, we have endpoint security. You know, okay, well, who answers the alerts, right? At 4 a.m. on a Saturday night when two people are on vacation, right? Like, 
those are the questions you got to keep asking. You know, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. Especially for small to mid-sized companies, having an internal team capable of defending technology assets against cyber threats isn't always possible. Leveraging a partner to help do that is sort of an objective party to help you come through that selection process can also be very valuable, especially if you don't have the staff to be able to do that on your teams. One reason businesses might become even more keen to bolster their cyber defensive lineup comes in the form of a proposed amendment by the SEC. The SEC issued a proposal to require uh, 8K disclosures of material cyber incidents within four business days. And I think the, the word material is the interesting one there. And I, I think they're defining that as anything that an investor would find important. So that paints a pretty wide swath. And I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that ultimately gets executed if it does go forward. In order to stay ahead of the curve on cybersecurity, private equity operators need to be able to build cost-effective, scalable frameworks that they can implement across their portfolios. Beth says that her approach to this when working with private equity clients involves three phases. At the very beginning, when a target's identified, it's risk sensing. It's really quick, but it's an outside-in look at the entity to get an understanding of what their posture looks like. And that includes utilizing dark sites or deep sites uh, information to, to understand what credentials might be out there, what information might be out there to give you a sense if they've been breached, if they're not aware they're being breached. So getting that outside in view. And then when it's signed, you know, you know, again, doing a maturity assessment, a deeper look at interviews and being part of the traditional due diligence process, but from a cybersecurity program perspective, technology perspective. And then post-close, doing you know, an evaluation to help with a roadmap and an understanding of how to mitigate the risk that might be out of balance with the risk appetite of the PE firm or the investment that's uh, being made. And Brad has his own list of three things that he sees as the most important to building scalable cybersecurity frameworks. One is ownership, right? So I think it's very important for both one person at the GP to be tasked with owning and understanding cybersecurity and understand what's going on at all, you know, ex-portfolio companies, right? In our case, we're at 20 right now, almost 22 soon. Then the second piece of that is a single owner at the portfolio company, right? So the way I think of that is we're almost like jointly and severally liable, right? Like, like something happens, it's going to be me and that person who has to answer to the board of what's going on. The second thing, and I also kind of said this earlier, start small, right? And, you know, we pick a top seven, you know, another firm I talked to has 12, another firm I talked to has 10, you know, just use that as your baseline, right? And if you pick them carefully enough, there's no arguing that you couldn't do them, right? You know, people like to argue passwords, right? And I'll be happy to have that debate all the time. Thankfully, it's gone down a little bit, but start small. And then the third piece is continuous and I think small touches. For Bill, it's all about taking a holistic approach to cyber. I'm very much a big fan of building in a kind of cybersecurity awareness into everything you do, into the management cadence, into development, product planning, into you know IT governance, all aspects of it. To me, that kind of baby steps, incremental approach is the only way to build the muscle to make it regularly exercised and part of daily life, like brushing your teeth. Chase, how many times a day do you brush your teeth? Wait, okay, are we talking about work from home days or the times I go into the office? I, I don't think I want to know the answer to that question. Rob, I'm going to be honest with you for a minute. I really don't know how I made it through the pandemic without a single new cavity. Small miracles, Chase, small miracles. But this idea of building cyber into a daily routine is really something that is less flashy, but more effective. If you do it as an ongoing 
program part of the discipline of what you do, your cybersecurity hygiene throughout and do it. It doesn't have to be heavy. It can be light, but, you know, absolutely focused on what's important. It's generally a lot more cost effective than the big bang approach. Anyway, um, you do it in a controlled fashion and then it's keeping the uh, the firm focused on what's important. And, and that is a board level area of focus for sure. But, you know, if you have the right voices uh, into that process and, and you're managing it well, it can be very, very cost effective. And again, uh, even add to the valuation process. There we are again, thinking about cybersecurity, not only as a value preservation exercise, but as a way to create value. It's certainly food for thought and something I'm sure operating partners are interested in dialing into for their own strategies. There's something else in there in that last comment from Beth, though, about having the right voices in the process. Something you mentioned earlier too, Rob, is that cyber is only as secure as the people using it. Today's talent wars can disrupt a business, but the right kind of workforce programs can be the key to staying as agile and skilled as today's market demands. And that's something we'll talk about in our final episode in the series. But in our next episode, we'll be talking about another form of disruption that's only accelerated in recent times, digitization. As much as people have touted all this potential to create value, there's also been an enormous spend regardless of the results. So join us in two weeks for a lively discussion about how best to look at digitization as something that can disrupt you or disrupt your competition. 